I'm Effie Parks. Welcome to Once Upon a Jane, the podcast. This is a place I created for us to connect and share the stories of our not-so-typical lives. Raising kids who are born with rare genetic syndromes and other types of disabilities can feel pretty isolating. What I know for sure is that when we can hear the triumphs and challenges from others who get it, we can find a lot more laughter, a lot more hope, and feel a lot less alone. I believe there are some magical healing powers that can happen for all of us through sharing our stories, and I'll take all the help I can get. Once Upon a Gene is proud to be part of Bloodstream Media. Living in a family affected by rare and chronic illness can be isolating, and sometimes the best medicine is connecting to the voices of people who share your experience. This is why Bloodstream Media produces podcasts, blogs, and other forms of content for patients, families, and clinicians impacted by rare and chronic diseases. Visit bloodstreammedia.com to learn more. Hello, friends. I'm so grateful you're here with me. Thank you for tuning in and listening to the show. You mean so much to me. I recently attended a small family meetup in Chicago, and I got to meet like 12 CTNNB1 families. I'll make an episode and tell you all about it. I also think I should start a video series titled, Is This Ford? No, it's a girl. (laughs) Anyways, it was so special. I can't wait to tell you about it. Okay, so today for the show, I have two supercharged parents on the pod. They're both physicians, and they had a baby in the pandemic who was later diagnosed with PGAP3. They are brilliant and driven and very relatable, and they're cruising right along in finding treatments for PGAP3. And with their new nonprofit called Moonshots for Unicorns, their hope is that they will be able to do it for many more disorders in the future. If you're on Instagram, check out their adorable daughter's page. It's titled Lucy the PGAP3 Goose. She's so cute. Please enjoy my conversation with Jerry and Zachary Landman. Hi, Jerry and Zachary. Welcome to the show. Hi, Effie. Thank you so much for having us on today. Yeah, nice to uh, meet you. Yes, you too. I have husband and wife duo, and they're both physicians, and they've both entered our rare disease land. Jerry, Zachary, can you give me kind of a little intro and a little background to your little Lucy, who has the PGAP3 variant? So Lucy is our uh, adorable and sweet, now 14-month-old third daughter. And she was born in in Hawaii on the Big Island, uh, actually during the pandemic. And early on, she seemed like just like our two older daughters and was kind of growing and developing generally normally until about four months old. We had moved back to the Bay Area at that point. Uh, I was a physician at Stanford doing a fellowship there. And around four months, we usually start trying to introduce some little bits of food and put them in the chair. And uh, when Jerry tried to do that with Lucy, she kind of slumped over to the side. And so, you know, it wasn't completely un, uh, unusual. And uh, every kid kind of goes at di- you know different rates in terms of milestones. And so we weren't too concerned. Over the you know coming weeks, our pediatrician referred us to a, a neurologist, and Jerry's actually a pediatrician, so she was kind of picking up you know more and more subtle differences between Lucy's experience and uh, that of her older sisters. And you know we even actually pushed for a, a rapid MRI really early on, um, just because one of the uh, prenatal ultrasounds had been a little unusual as well, and it was read as normal. And uh, the neurologist started her on physical therapy and she was kind of gaining uh, strength and doing really well. And everyone kind of told us that it was kind of benign congenital delay that, you know, she'd kept catch up 
likely by a year, but if not by a year, by, you know, four or five years old. But Jerry was getting, you know, more and more, you know, concerned. And especially when we um, had a little family vacation and she got a little cold, Lucy started to look really floppy, started, uh, stopped uh, smiling and, and babbling and actually not even eating uh, any pouches of food around eight months old. And so that's when, you know, Jerry uh, sent these videos to her neurologist and said, look, I'm, I'm really concerned as a, as a pediatrician. And they said, okay, maybe we can get an MRI. This was back in, in March, you know, scheduled as an outpatient, which would have been in, you know, July or August, literally it would have been about now that she would have had her kind of first of her real MRIs or real tests. Fortunately, because I was uh, working at Stanford and, and Jerry is a pediatrician, she really pushed for it. And so they actually did, a, they admitted her to the hospital for an expedited workup and she had kind of some special MRIs with and without contrast. Um, she had a nerve conduction study. She had a 48 hour EEG for, uh, to look for seizures and ultimately a spinal tap to look for you know, any potential infections or neurotransmitter uh, deficiencies. And everything was honestly reassuring. They were like, you know, there's nothing on any of these studies. You're not having seizures. The nerve conduction study looks fine. But we just got lucky that the neurologist who happened to be taking care of patients in the hospital also was a geneticist. She was a neurogeneticist. And so, you know, she didn't really believe the diagnosis. And Jerry had actually worked with her when she was a medical student at UCSF. So we had a personal connection. She said, look, this is, there's nothing more to do in the hospital after three days, but I'm going to send some really broad testing for 450 or more genes. And so she was discharged from the hospital in, in March and restarted physical therapy. And honestly, she was looking almost back to her baseline, starting to gain, you know, new skills and doing those types of things, albeit maybe slightly slower than before. But on April 18th, we got a text message from Dr. Rushkinoff uh, that said, uh, you know, guys, I need you guys to be on a Zoom uh, this afternoon. I got Lucy's genetic report back and uh, I'm a bit concerned. And that, that hour between the time she texted and uh, the time we got on the Zoom was probably one of the more challenging hours. We kind of just went to the bathtub with Lucy because that's where she was always happiest. And she, you know, she got on the, on the phone, on the Zoom and told us uh, Lucy had uh, likely two bad copies of her, what's called PGAP3 gene, which is a, a gene that produces a, a protein, an enzyme um, that helps molecules stick to the surface of the cell called GPI anchor disorders, or that's a kind of class of disorders. Uh, and based on her reading of it, she had never had a patient with it because it was ultra rare, maybe less than 50 in the world. But from her reading of the literature and her um, background knowledge that she told us that Lucy would likely never talk never walk and, uh, you know, may develop a uh, retractable or very difficult treat, uh, to, uh, difficult to treat seizures sometime in childhood. And then unfortunately, because it was so rare that there was no treatments, no therapies, and no even research into treatments or therapies that she could connect us to, like potential clinical trials. Yeah. So I think there's a few important points about that story, which are we were reassured so many times with Lucy and, and felt such a sense of relief, you know, in the prenatal period, when we first saw the neurologist, when we had that first MRI, even after this expedited hospitalization, I breathed so many sighs of relief. I said, okay, I'm, I think I overcalled this one. She's fine. She's fine. And so when, when Dr. Reshnikov texted about the genetic results on April 18th, I honestly was shocked because I didn't expect to find anything on those. I expected to be reassured again. And so we, we took our requisite week and cried and went for lots of hikes and hugged Lucy, and then we got to work. 
I think the emotion that comes from you in that story resonates so deeply with everyone, especially the delivery of, of the grim news of like what they don't know and what's not there. But even that hour before your Zoom call, what a painful moment to have everything change like that. I wonder for you, especially, Jerry, since you were a pediatrician, I know most of our listeners, including myself, had the experiences of uh, being brushed off, like completely being brushed off and gaslit in many ways about our concerns with our kids. And I wonder, like, what was that like for you as a mom and for you as a pediatrician in those moments? Like, I know you said maybe you thought you were overthinking it sometimes, but what was that like exactly for you? And how was that push and pull? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I think that experience comes about for rare disease families because as doctors, we're taught there's a classic phrase that when you hear hoofbeats, think horses, not zebras, right? Because horses are a lot more common. And I even checked myself and said, you know what, Jerry, postpartum anxiety, which I didn't have with my first two, but postpartum anxiety is a lot more common than sort of rare neurologic disorders. So is this your pathology or is this Lucy's real pathology? And I think that a lot of us rare disease moms have questioned ourselves like, am I a crazy person a million times over? And then you come back to it and you look at your child and you say, I'm not crazy and I have to be an advocate for my child. I had a mentor in medical school who made me decide to become a pediatrician who I remember doing this family meeting with and I was really trying to impress and so thought I was being such a good listener. And his one piece of feedback for that meeting was, listen even more. And that is just a adage that I take with me into every patient appointment and has become so much more clear even over the last four months of just if you listen to parents, they know when something's not right. And so I think, you know, I, I really struggled with how much to advocate um, there are times that Zach was even frustrated with me saying like, if you're so concerned, don't sit here and just, you know, worry, advocate for your child. And so I think when when we kind of finally did that and, and I sent a message that said something seems very wrong and I, I need to be taken seriously here. That's when, you know, everyone kind of mobilized around us, our neurologist, the neurogeneticist in the hospital, the pediatrician in the hospital said, yeah, okay, we we hear what you're saying. And, and thank goodness, because it led to a, a relatively early diagnosis for Lucy. Yeah, and I can just say as as the partner who's also a physician, I think the hardest months in our marriage were the three months prior to Lucy's diagnosis. Because, you know, we both went to medical school at UCSF, and I don't know how many times I told Jerry, we've tested for everything. Like, and we hadn't, is the reality. We hadn't even thought about these kind of rare genetic disorders, but we would have thought that it would have shown up on an MRI or on a LP or on a blood work or on something like that. And so when everything can be, you know, normal and reassuring and have such a devastating diagnosis, it brought us together. Uh, and then since then, we've kind of been in lockstep and kind of foot down on the gas pedal trying to rectify the situation, which is, you know, that there were no options for treatments or therapies. And we didn't want that to um, be Lucy's journey. Oof, I love that. Do you think that perhaps since there are over 10,000 rare diseases and that it's not rare in 
cumulatively whatsoever and genetic testing is becoming more prevalent and more affordable that maybe in medical school you won't hear that common phrase about hoofbeats and zebras and that maybe we'll automatically kind of go to that if we see the signs or the symptoms that everyone already has now that doesn't have tests like autism cerebral palsy like all of those buckets that aren't necessarily getting tested do you think that it'll be just more like you would think of that first in rather than the three months that you and Jerry went through where you were kind of not necessarily arguing about well, it, we were. but <laughs> thinking that you turned over every rock. <laughs> I hope so. I think personalized medicine is the wave of the future. And a huge part of that is having affordable, accessible genetic testing. Zach and I have already started doing some advocacy for that. And Dr. Roshnikoff at Stanford is a is a huge advocate of that. She actually has a fund to help families called the Little Zebra Fund for, you know, giving families who can't afford it otherwise access to genetic testing who who really need it. So I'm hoping that, that medical education is definitely going the way of that. And the company that diagnosed Lucy Invitae, we're working with them to push forward some legislation to make, you know, all parts of California, at least our state, have really affordable and accessible access to to full genome sequencing. And it's also kind of a chicken and egg problem is that doctors tend not to test for things that we can't do things about, right? And so if there's no treatments and there's no therapies, then, you know, why does it really matter? Well, obviously it matters to patients and having the knowledge and understanding kind of what the path looks like is, is incredibly important, but that's kind of not typically how kind of doctors approach situations. So if the test isn't going to change what you do, why do you order, you know, a test that has potential risks or costs associated with it? And so what we've learned from other families, you know, that when gene therapy became available for SMARD earlier this year, SMA with respiratory distress, within a matter of months, the number of patients uh, diagnosed tripled, right? And so people are like, oh, there's a there's a potential, you know, therapy that could be highly effective. Uh, we should do this enhanced testing or go back and re kind of revisit those patients that may have had kind of these grouping or, or, you know, grab bag diagnoses where you kind of put, you know, you describe the symptoms rather than diagnose the disease, you know, things like autism or developmental delay um, that aren't really specific diagnoses, but more kind of categories of, of symptoms. Yes. And hopefully that's definitely going to be part of what you do with Invitae. I can't wait to hear more about, you know, your collaboration with them on this finding more patients and getting people diagnosed because we all need more patients in our, in our disease groups for sure. We all need more patients, but the, the power of diagnosis even beyond that, and I, I'm sure you felt this too, Effie, is just it, it's transformative in a couple ways, right? It helps before Lucy was diagnosed, we really had a deficit mentality of just, gosh, I'm so worried that she's not meeting this developmental milestone, or why is she doing this? Why isn't she eating, etc. And now it's such a strengths-based mentality where we can look at her and really celebrate every achievement that she does hit, knowing the challenges that she has with them. And then the other piece too is, you know, as a pediatrician before her diagnosis, I never wanted to over-medicalize her. Like a lot of our patients with, and a lot of our kids with low tone, Lucy has a super slow gut. She has terrible reflux and constipation and she was really uncomfortable. And I was trying to, you know, give her extra water, give her a little prune juice, maybe a like whiff of reflux medications. After her diagnosis, we're kind of aggressively treating those things. And we have such a happy baby now who is, you know, not uncomfortable because she's not, we're not over medicalizing her. We're appropriately treating her diagnosis at this point. And so I just think even, even if there are no quote unquote treatments for the specific disorder, 
having a diagnosis is so powerful for families in so many different ways. Mm, I love that you said that. And that's such an amazing and important mind shift that you had. And I had the exact same experience with many of your things that you've had with Lucy. It's pretty parallel to my own story. And I totally get it. I want to kind of talk back about your amazing neurogeneticist, Roshnikov, and how you happen to be in the perfect place at the perfect time and have you know, your amazing education and your connections. And you got this diagnosis, you grieved for a moment, and then you took action like super quickly, which is, I really respect you for that. And I thank you as a fellow rare parent, because what you're doing even for Lucy right now is helping all of our kids. So I kind of want to know about your next steps in creating Moonshots for Unicorns, what the mission is, and what kind of scaffolding you put in place right then when you decided that you were going to do something about I'll it. I'll let Zach talk about the details of Moonshots for Unicorns, but I think the the vision that we had a weekend and the real mission of Moonshots for Unicorns, as you know, a moonshot is like a lofty goal, right? Aiming for the moon, maybe you land, maybe you land among the stars, and a unicorn is what all of our kids are. And we just had this vision that we wanted no rare disease parent to go to bed the night they got their diagnosis, feeling like we did, that there were no treatments and no cures. The mission and the vision of of Moonshots for Unicorns is that it is 2022. There are, as you say, many single gene disorders out there, but there there are not no treatments and no cures. They just haven't been made yet. They just haven't been found yet. And and that's the overarching big picture mission. But I'll let Zach talk a, more about the details. So, you know, just from from our perspective and my perspective, I've I've always kind of overdone things in my life. And so when I first started running a marathon, I didn't just run a marathon. I ran a hundred mile marathon and my first triathlon ever was an Ironman. So I'm kind of one of these crazy, crazy folks that thinks, you know, anything is possible. But I think when you have a rare disease kid, you need to have that mentality. And so we didn't uh, design Moonshots for Unicorns just to focus on PGAP3. Like Jerry said, it was, we're going to start with PGAP3 because uh, that's what we're learning the most about and where we're focusing our, our resources. But then the goal is truly to be able to develop effective therapies for all these single gene you know, disorders, these genetic conditions that have kind of no options for treatment. So... Uh, after about a week of doing lots of hikes and crying in bed, I said, Jerry, look, we got to either we can you know, mourn forever or we can go into action mode. And so we went into action mode and we basically read every scientific paper that's available about PGAP3 as well as the GPI anchor disorders and then emailed pretty much every first and last, last author with the first being the person that wrote the paper. And then the last author is basically the chief of the division or department uh, or laboratory. Uh, and basically told them our our story. Having a background in medicine, we were able to kind of learn the science pretty quickly. I would say that Jerry literally got like, probably spent more hours than me learning all the specific details. He has more of a biochemistry background than than me. But uh, what we got connected, we connected to kind of Dr. Yu at Harvard, who uh, does uh, ASO or anti-sense nucleo-oligotide, as well as his progeny uh, in in Korea that are now kind of advancing that there. We uh, looked into drug repurposing and and spoke to Dr. Ethan Perlstein, among others, as well as Dr. Might at at Alabama, and then gene therapy. And while Jerry was reading um, the 
New England Journal of Medicine Gene Therapy article from uh, 2016 or 17 that basically was highly effective for spinal muscular atrophy in the 14 or 15 kids that were in that uh, clinical trial. She was like, we got to email these folks. And so we reached out to Dr. Catherine Meyer, who's the director of uh, gene therapy at Nationwide Children's in Ohio. And she said, well, let me look into the gene and its effect and its size and all these kind of other uh, nitty gritty attributes. And she says, look, I think gene therapy could be highly effective. It has all the, the properties that would make it a, a perfect candidate. So she's like, you know what, what we need to do first is we need to get some, some cells, some skin cells to basically turn those into kind of pseudo stem cells to grow them into neurons to see if it's possible. And I said, great, we'll, we'll go to Stanford and they can do the biopsy and then mail it to mail it to you guys. And she said, great. And our Stanford doctors were like, yeah, we're happy to do it. Come into clinic. We'll mail it over to, to uh, Ohio, FedEx it or whatever, how they you know, send the, the tissue. And uh, then we got an email the next day that said, oh, the lawyers at, at Nationwide and the lawyers at Stanford just have to agree. And we said, okay, that's fine. And they said, oh, it'll take three to six months for them to agree. And we said, wait, we, we don't have any rights to it. You can put it on Facebook or tissue. We don't care, you know. And they said, no, these, these agreements take take forever. And so, you know, I hopped on a, an overnight with Lucy on my lap and four flights and 23 hours later, we had met the team and they got the biopsy in Ohio on her and we were back before I had patients the next day. But that was kind of the first, you know, weeks after her diagnosis. And uh, since then, we've you know, connected uh, to other uh, PGAP3 children. There's, there was really no other kind of foundations or nonprofits focusing on PGAP3 uh, until Moonshots for Unicorns. And so uh, as of now, uh, gene therapy is kind of uh, underway uh, at, at Nationwide Children's. They've developed uh, her cells into neurons. And we can talk a little bit more about the specifics, but uh, and other nonprofit laboratories are actually uh, developing the ma uh, mouse models, which ultimately to kind of send the FDA the effect efficacy and uh, safety studies and and that type of thing. Uh, so we'll, we're doing that gene therapy, and then we're also, as well, kind of par in parallel, doing some drug repurposing work as well to see if there's a kind of existing medicines that could help you know help Lucy and help others. Dang, Zach. First of all, why is there not a direct flight to, to Columbus anywhere? It is such a pain to get <laughs> yeah. to Columbus. It goes through Atlanta, like all things. Yes. <laughs> it's the worst. Bureaucracy is the worst. That's amazing. I love that flight story. I wish you would have filmed it. And I hope you kept like a video, like a, at least an audio diary of <laughs> yeah. it. And I'm so excited. It's a good candidate for gene therapy. So basically what you're saying is you have all shots on goal, right? You have all moonshots on goal. You're doing drug repurposing. You're checking out for gene therapy. You're growing all these cells. You're looking at all of the things, your clients at Perlara, Jackson Labs making your mice, like you have all of your things in place within minutes in the world of how long this usually takes people to do. How did you learn that you needed to kind of diversify? Like who taught you this? Was this just kind of what you knew as physicians and kind of understanding the science right away? Or did you have a mentor? We did not know, but we ride on the backs of all the other rare disease parents who have taken the time to come on your podcast, Effie, who have put videos up on things like the CDG Global Alliance. We learned a lot just by listening and watching in, in the first weeks and what are other families doing. Um, we certainly asked Dr. Roshnikoff if she knew of anyone, and, and she was one of our first references to Ethan over at Perlara, as well as, you know, uh, 
watching some videos on on the CDG Facebook page. And so, you know, when, when you start to do this as a rare disease parent, certain names come up over and over and certain concepts come up over and over, right? There's there's buckets of things that you can do and you, you have to decide where to put your resources. Are you just going to do the kind of nutritional supplements and everything that's known about your disease and see how that goes? Are you going to do the drug repurposing bucket? Are you going to do the gene therapy ASO, ASO kind of bucket? You know, one thing we heard very early on from a lot of rare disease parents was that they they went all in on one to start out with and wished that they, maybe that didn't work out because science is messy. And so we we thought a little bit about that. Now we have limited resources, so we are also getting a, a fast tracked education in how do you fundraise for this. There are some personal funds, but as many rare disease parents and advocates know, that is nothing compared to the cost of developing a gene therapy. And so I continue to listen to your podcast for advice on that. Yeah, I think uh, uh, just to Jerry's point is, I don't know how many times we told each other, wow, people are so nice and willing to share time, even if it's 15 or 30 minutes. And so, you know, we would email a family or a scientist and expecting maybe no response and they would get right back and then we'd have a call with them and then they'd connect us to one or two more people. And so, you know, I would say as we've kind of gone down this path, uh, Brittany uh, Steinman has been, uh, you know, a mentor to Jerry and has kind of gone through the gene therapy and for SMA um, with respiratory distress. And so that's been really helpful, kind of understanding kind of what the nitty gritty, like how does it actually happen for someone that's done it? And then, you know, a more experienced family that's been around, they have two children with Batten disease is, um, Gordon and Kristen Gray. And uh, Kristen Gray shared some time with me on her experience kind of getting some of the pioneers of gene therapy, honestly, back in about 2016 or 17 um, when they went through it. And I asked her, I said, what's your one piece of advice at the end of the phone call in terms of which which one, uh, which type of therapy should we go after, you know, supplements or gene therapy, ASO or drug repurposing? And she goes, yes. <laughs> and I was like, what do you mean? She goes like, you need to do them all. You really, I, I know it's hard to say, and, and it is when you look at the cost of these things, it's kind of insurmountable. And I think Jerry and I are still trying to figure out how best to uh, fundraise for Moonshots and get the necessary funds to make this happen on the kind of the timeline that um, our scientists are working and that our brains are thinking. But I think they're all important and they all can be, you know, valuable in different ways and at different points in the condition. Yes. I mean, these people are the best people in the world and you've obviously already figured that out. I'm so glad you've connected with Brittany Steinman. She's such an amazing mom. And the Gray family, right, for sharing their knowledge and their mistakes that they made and you just you you can't go further without getting this kind of inside information from these families who are in between taking care of their children and their own doctor's appointments and their own fundraising and their own science. They're spreading it with other families because you can't not. Yeah, we decline no connection. We are so grateful for everyone's time and experience. And I hope that Someday when we're, you know, I don't know that there is another, uh, the other side. I don't know that any rare disease family comes out on the other side because we will always have a child with a rare disease, right? But as we learn to sit in this space a little bit more, hopefully there will be more, some more space where we can continue to to help others navigate this path and, and moonshots wants to have a role in that as well. Well, I'm super grateful that that's part of your mission, especially in the beginning. It's so easy to kind of just think about your kid, right? And you automatically went into it thinking, if we can do this, we can do this for other people. And I think that's going to carry you a long way. 
for sure. I wonder, other than fundraising, is there any roadblock that you weren't expecting so far? And and how have you pushed through it? <laughs> I think there's there's a lot of those roadblocks. But what's shocking is you first learn about a new technology. Like, I am a general pediatrician. I don't have any patients who have received gene therapy, which is unsurprising. I think that would be true for 99.9% of pediatricians in this country. And you hear about the science behind gene therapy, right? And you say, oh, it's simple. It's a package. It delivers a gene. This is a logistical problem. We just need to raise, you know, three to seven million dollars and, and our child will be cured. And then you, you know, being a scientist, realize that there are, in fact, many challenges that, that come with this. And I'm a big fan of leaving those to the scientists, but can't help with my own scientific brain being curious about all the pieces of it. And, you know, if you're going to spend this time fundraising and working with scientists on this, you want your child to receive the most effective treatment possible. And so I think I've spent at least the last two months or so talking to a whole number of people that have given me a lot of what I what Zach calls cold water conversations, that this isn't just a problem of logistics, that there's a lot of science left to be worked out about gene therapy, not that it's not super promising, and not that it's not an option, but gosh, how are we going to deliver this? How are we going to hide it from the immune system? How, you know, I think you've had many people on your podcast who talk about the nitty gritty of, of gene therapy, but, you know, I am so grateful that we have members of our team who are helping us work through that and people who have those cold water conversations with me that I, that, you know, keep expectations realistic and at the same time push the, push the science forward to make this even more effective. Yeah, I think especially when you have a, an infant, a, a baby in front of you, and you know every day you expect some type of development and a progression, and I think that's given us a sense of urgency that there may not be you know unlimited time, and uh, but it's also been been challenging. I think early on when we were connecting with um, Dr. Perlstein, he's like he sent an email that said you know, slow down. I know you want everything done yesterday, but you're literally moving faster than I've worked with any other family in the entire world to set up your own pop-up lab in San Francisco and get the experiments going. But we also need to work on realistic timelines. And so uh, I think uh, that's been the biggest kind of challenge for me in terms of recognizing that, you know, this isn't going to get done in, in, a, in a week or probably even in six months or a year. There, hopefully that we'll have some developments. But you're never quite there. And yesterday, we, we had a, a good fortune to talk to the CEO of Altergenics, and he gave us a piece of advice uh, at the end of the call that said, look, I know you guys are so focused on the end, but you need to focus on each milestone along the way and kind of go step by step. I know it's frustrating, but I think that's been the biggest um, challenge for us is to really kind of focus on what's in the next two weeks or next month or two rather than, you know, two years from now. I love that both of those guys, I'm assuming Emil and Ethan, are people who move so quickly and who are like hammering down and like making moves faster than most people. And they're the ones telling you to slow down. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. yeah. And you right. really have done kind of like the ultra Ironman of where you're at right now. So, I mean, it's pretty cool. That did remind me, I forgot I wanted to ask you about the pop-up labs and funding them and how it's quite possibly a game changer in your experience with it so far. Yeah, absolutely. So 
Uh, when we approached, um, you know, Ethan about doing this drug repurposing, we actually expected to do, he had used a lab or he calls him kind of a cure guy, which is a scientist that's part of his team that kind of oversees the experiments in New Zealand. And he had worked with um, a different company in China and then a different one in Oregon. And they're all kind of independent companies and some are academic, some are for profit, some are kind of in between. Uh, and you kind of, you know, get your experiments in the queue and they give you kind of a cost of, you know, what it's going to cost, you know, plus or minus. Um, and you kind of have what's called go, no go, that if the experiments don't work, you don't have to, you know, pay for more, you can go a different direction or something like that. And then you get these timelines and the timelines can be like, well, it'll be three to nine months. And we're like, wait, is it going to be three or is it going to be nine? And when are the experiments going to start? Like, well, it depends on all the other different pathways and things that the, you know, the lab is doing. They're not just doing your little tiny experiments. And so, that's when kind of we started really exploring this idea of a pop-up lab. And now with this community growing um, and, you know, especially as kind of, you know, I think about it as a kind of a hub and spoke model where, you know, Ethan has lots of spokes and we're a one rare disease family and we need to do kind of yeast or worm, you know, experiments. Well, it doesn't need to be PGAP3. It can be, you know, a different condition, but you need the same equipment and you need the, you know, the same types of experiments. And if it's in the same category, and especially Ethan kind of focuses on CDG, you know, generally the scientists can work on both at the same time. And so that's when I think there's, there's two and potentially a third family that is contributing to the um, pop-up lab in San Francisco. And, you know, there aren't fancy offices. There's no leather chairs. It literally looks like the saddest place in the world. It's like just like a windowless room with some equipment on it, but yeast are growing and they're getting, you know, results. And that's all you really need, you know, a, a scientist and the right equipment and if you have enough families that kind of contribute, it's enough volume or enough work for the scientists to be doing. I think one family, you know, just wouldn't have enough experiments to keep a scientist busy, you know, for enough to hire them. And so that's when I think the kind of group coming together is really, really effective. Yeah, Ethan has such a vision for this. Supposedly, there's now going to be by the end of August, five families that are sharing, you know, a scientist and and space at SF Bio Labs, which is which is incredible. What a good pooling of resources. As Ethan says, there's plenty of room in the incubator. Yeah, and we get real-time updates. And so, you know, I got a picture of the yeast, you know, yesterday and how they're growing. And that kind of from a family's perspective, uh, and especially with our kind of scientific and medical background, we want that type of hands-on uh, ability to kind of know where things are rather than kind of sending them out and then you kind of get a report back, you know, in, in some amount of time based on when you kind of get in the queue. So I think we'll see where it goes, but the, the possibilities are, are really endless. Just another added point of the definition of precision medicine, right? Like getting that personal connection, not sending out an email to academia and maybe hearing back in a couple months and not really ever knowing what's going on. I love that you just got a snapshot of it and you're being updated like that. We did do the academic send out too, where we kind of sent our gene and they have a kind of nonprofit thing and they kind of we did it, I think we sent it in May and they said, okay, it should be a month and we'll get back to you with some possible uh, drug repurposing targets and didn't hear anything in May and didn't hear anything in July. And then they said, oh, it they had to apply for a grant. And so it was going to be a little bit of a delay. And then by the time in August, we actually just got a report back that gave us a few different options and and they gave us the scientific papers. And you know, Jerry was reading one of these scientific papers and she goes, this isn't even 
applicable to us. Like if this is for a different pathway and if they had actually read the paper, you'd see it's for a very specific mutation. And so, you know, I think it was, you know, a, we were part of a, you know, probably hundreds or thousands of people that send in their genes into this academic lab and they kind of churn out some papers that are of interest uh, for you, but it didn't really provide us anything that would be at all beneficial to Lucy or really anyone else with PGAP3. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yes. And thank goodness you didn't wait for, wait around for that. I'm going to have to have Ethan back on and talk about the pop-up labs for sure. But you two are amazing. I could talk to you all day. <laughs> <laughs> for real. Let's see. I just kind of want to know one more thing for this particular conversation. Um, I want you to speak to like our, our friends and our family and our listeners right now, the ones who are kind of in the thick of it, maybe have some imposter syndrome, maybe feel like they are just holding their heads above water. Can you offer them any hope or advice or any actions they can take to get to the next step? I guess I can just offer to be in that boat with them. And that's that's comforting to me as a rare disease mom of just knowing that I am not the first one to go through this. You know, Brittany Steinman's first email to me said brighter days ahead. And I was like, thank God that gets me to tomorrow, you know? And so, but I think I think it's 2022. What we realized a week after Lucy's diagnosis was there is so much science going on and there's such a growing interest in rare diseases that's so hard to find. You know, it's not the first Google page that you necessarily get to, but but as we've done this work over time, um, there are so many people who want to help and smart people thinking about these things in different ways that I think, you know, that this field, as more people get diagnosed with the availability of genetic testing is, is really going to explode over the next 20 years. But solidarity to having to do this while you still have a job and you still have a rare disease child to take care of, right? Physical therapy, occupational therapy, pediatricians appointments, like coordinating medications and stuff. Lucy is thankfully like relatively medically um, and especially being a pediatrician, not super complex at the moment. She needs a lot of therapies, but I certainly have taken care of a number of children who have just a much more... Um, rigorous daily routine in terms of medication administration, feedings, and and things like that. And that, I, I mean, the amount of brain space that that takes for a parent, and then to think that you are also trying to fundraise and find you know new treatments for your child. It's it's a lot, um, but we're in the boat with you. And, you know, I'm sorry, we're all in this rare disease boat, but it's really a wonderful group of people to be in a boat with. Yeah, just on that on that point, in, in the days after Lucy's diagnosis, I was crying about it. And uh, my dad's a retired uh, developmental pediatrician, actually, uh, you know, took care of kids just like, you know, Lucy throughout his career. And he said, look, you know, there's no way other to phrase it other than it really sucks. You guys lost the genetic lottery, you know, and it hurts right now. But what I've seen is that over time, this oftentimes brings families together and uh, makes families stronger. And so you won't be able to see that now. And it's, it's kind of hard to imagine right now. Um, but believe me, and it's only been four months. And I've already seen changes and uh, positive changes and Lucy's two older sisters in terms of how they care for her, how they talk about her, how they just interact with the world in terms of 
and, and as a family, I don't think we've actually ever been closer. And so, you know, just the other day, um, Lucy's older sister, Audrey, who's eight, said, you know what, Dad, if Lucy doesn't walk, that's fine. She, she'll fly. And... Uh, <laughs> Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. She, oh, my gosh. Uh, she's, you know, it's, anyway, so I just want to say that if, you know, if you're just getting the diagnosis now, you know, cry, take time, go for a hike to it. You makes your brain uh, unplug for a little bit. But we're already seeing it just months in that our family's stronger um, because of it. Lucy brings us a lot of joy. She's not like it, uh, what we expected our 14 month would be, you know, doing. Um, but I love my time with her. So that uh, is one thing. And then just to echo the science is that one thing that made my heart race and gave me so much anxiety was we don't have time. We don't have time. We have to find something now. And, and I still have that sense of urgency. But, you know, um, Emily yesterday, uh, even just recently, some of the results for Angelman syndrome, which is a very similar neurodevelopmental syndrome. The results from ASO technology are sh showing that even kids and teenagers that may have never been having speech or movement are gaining and making, you know, significant and positive gains. And so, you know, I had a family, and I think it was their, their child is somewhere between six and 10 years old with PGAP3. And they said, you know, it's probably, we love what you're doing. It's probably too late for, for us. And I, and I go, I don't think so. You know, no one knows and no scientist can tell us, you know, when a therapy will be effective and when it won't. But we need to keep pushing because I don't think anything is ever too late. And we're already seeing some data that shows that even if you're 10 or 15 or potentially 20 or maybe in a, even in adulthood, that if you restore the function of some of these missing genes, the body has a, you know, a brilliant way of uh, repairing itself. So I think the possibilities are, are really potentially endless and that the science is advancing so fast in this area. If anyone needs to, you could just rewind to both of their advice uh, <laughs> inputs. Those are so good. Your dad had the best advice for sure. And I, I know everyone was nodding along with you and recognized that at the end of the day, our families are so much richer and there's so much love here. And there's so many smart people working to make a better, better life for all these kids. So thanks, Jerry and Zachary, for being my guests. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, you'll find that on social media, that when we became a part of this community, it's just so evident how much joy children with rare diseases, and I don't mean to minimize the challenges that having a child with a rare disease puts on a family, but how much joy these children bring to their families and, and how close these families are and what incredible people they all are. So we are, you know, privileged to be a part of this community. Well, I'm super glad you're in our boat. So sorry you're here, but not sorry. Yep. Jerry, Zachary, thanks for being my guest today. I look forward to keeping in touch and speaking to you again. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Effie. We really appreciate it as well. I hope you've been enjoying this podcast. If you like what you hear, please share this show with your people and please make sure to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also head over to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to connect with me and stay updated on the show. If you're interested in sharing your story or if you have anything you would like to contribute, please submit it to my website at effieparks.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show and for supporting me along the way. I appreciate you all so much. I don't know what kind of day you're having, but if you need a little pick-me-up, Ford's got you. <laughs>